eyes wide open, mind racing with existential questions and every mildly embarrassing thing you've done in your life? Oh, fellow overthinker, I understand. But don't worry, I'm here to talk to you about it. I'll indulge the overthinking. I know there's some existential questions about science and health that are keeping you awake at night. But they don't have to be. I, Mim, student nutritionist and medical writer, will be coming on here every Monday to talk to experts like Dr. Giles Yo, Dr. Raghav Sharma and Nina Abed to answer those big questions that you and I have. And that will be season four, The Big Questions. Now let's get on to this episode. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Growth Medium podcast. Today I've got Dr. Raghav Sharma, someone who I would argue is the absolute social media king when it comes to preventative, preventive, preventative medicine. Raghav, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's actually, you could do both. It's preventative or preventive. With our name, we decided to go preventive because it's less to spell out. Yeah, no, because I was Googling it when I was researching for this episode and I was like, wait, is preventative a word? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, most people actually write preventative, but uh, they always say preventative medicine podcast, but it's much easier to spell it and like write it and put on a logo and whatnot if it's just preventive. So that's what we stuck with. Yeah. Yeah. So just to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story? You know, who is Raghav Sharma and what motivated you to start the Preventive Medicine Podcast? Sure. So I am Raghav Sharma. Thank you for introducing me. I am absolutely not the king of social media when it comes to preventive medicine yet, hopefully. But I am deeply passionate about preventive medicine. A lot of that stems from kind of my own story. I had kind of a medical issue when I was very young, which caused me to gain quite a bit of weight very early, kind of never uh, lost that weight. As I was growing up, was always kind of like the big kid, all those kinds of things. And then one day my uh, endocrinologist told me, hey, look, you are going to be shortening your lifespan. You're doing all these certain things putting yourself at higher risk for these various diseases, you should probably do something about it. And then at that point, whatever it was, something happened. Then I started figuring out how to do things, how to work out, how to like think about proper nutrition, all those different kinds of things. And it kind of just cascaded and that turned into kind of a lifelong passion of helping people improve their lives because of how much benefit I got and how I think I turned my own life around at that point. And I know it's not always possible for everyone in that same kind of way because I was young. I had all the resources available to me. I could do essentially whatever I wanted, fix myself. But um, I think preventing things, it's a very noble cause to prevent and like make sure that people don't suffer downstream morbidities and mortalities. If once it's too late, sometimes you just have to pay a lot of money. You have to do all these sorts of things and it can be very expensive. So I think it's just a very noble cause. And that's kind of what I've dedicated myself to. Currently, I am a resident physician um, in training. I'm doing physical medicine rehab, which is kind of the field that focuses on kind of functional mobility, on just functionality in general. And helping people get back to what they want to do after whatever kind of issue might have occurred, whether it's a stroke, some sort of just musculoskeletal accident or injury, whatever it could be, we kind of just help them regain to what they want to do. And so would you say that kind of appointment or visit to the endocrinologist was your cornerstone moment? Or was it something that, you know, you kind of had in the back of, of your mind, like, okay, I'm gaining a lot of weight, I should probably do something about this? I think it actually was that cornerstone moment. I don't know what it was about it. I think I was 16 at that time. So a little over 12 years ago now, or sorry, a little Mm -hmm. under 12 years, but it was just 
I don't know. It was just that moment. And then I decided to do something like on that car ride home. I was already figuring out like what I was going to do about it, what I was going to Google when I got home, mm -hmm. all those different kinds of things. So that really was uh, really was a cornerstone. You know what? That's amazing kind of foresight to have at 16 years old, because I feel like even so I'm in my early 20s. Well, like I'm 23, so I guess that's early mm -hmm. 20s. And I feel like even people now don't really think too much into their future health at this age. So doing that at 16 is actually incredible. And I think, you know, once you have a physician, a doctor telling you, hey, this is going wrong, it does put a little bit of pressure on you as well. Not like in a negative sense, but kind of in a more, hey, you should probably go and do something about it. And I feel like a lot of 16 year olds don't listen mm. to that. So good foresight there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it depends on the physician patient relationship as well. I'd been seeing him since I was like six or seven years old. So he'd known me, he knows my family, he knew mm -hmm. we were kind of on a friendly level at that point where it's not just you're going to a physician, they're being paternalistic, hey, you're gonna die soon. So you should do something about it. And I think it also is different messages for everyone. And as now a physician, you kind of have to realize that with every patient it requires different kind of either motivational coaching or different kind of messaging that allows them to kind of click in their head of what they need to do and how they can advocate for themselves. So it worked for me. I wouldn't say it works for everyone else to kind of use that you're going to die soon yeah. uh, method, but uh, it ended up working for me. Yeah. So it seems like your interest in preventative medicine then is really, you know, it started off from your own personal experiences. So, you know, could you define what preventative medicine is and what it specifically means to you? Sure. So preventive medicine, actually, uh, this is great for turning that question around because normally I ask this on my podcast and uh, mm -hmm. it's one of the hardest questions to answer just because there's so much to it. And I think it's getting even harder now to answer because I've heard so many of guests on my podcast answer this in so many different ways that it's kind of hard for me to come up with a good definition. But I think there's two ways to approach this. One is preventive medicine in the very gross basic sense is making sure that things don't happen downstream by actions done currently within the present. So that's the very basic way um, of putting it. And then a little bit more advanced is kind of something that Dr. Austin Baraki uh, mentioned on my podcast. And I think he stole the definition from, some, from somewhere else. It's kind of the ability to self-manage and adapt in the face of the various stressors that life throws at you and a way to kind of manage yourself in a health promoting way. That's a, that's a really good definition because I feel like it encompasses the many different things that can impact your health you know that's something that i think i've learned from your podcast as well that there's so many different things that can impact your health not just you know life and uh diet and exercise and whatever it could be you know your genetics it could be your socioeconomic class or things like that so yeah no i like that definition a lot and i think one question I do have is, so we have this preventative model, I guess, which is trying to reduce the risk of anything happening downstream or being adaptable, as you just mentioned, to whatever things that can come your way that might impact getting a disease or something like that. So I'm not a healthcare professional. I am just a biochemist. For me, as like a just a random patient or a random member of the public it sounds very different to what we have as like the traditional western approach where i'm talking about the uk here and the uk will be obviously different to other countries but we very much don't think about prevention that much we kind of go to the gp or we go to the doctors when we've already got an issue so you know my question is how does then preventative medicine how is it different to kind of this traditional approach before I answer that, can I ask you a little bit more? Because I'm not familiar with UK medicine at all. I'm sure it's a completely different system in the United States. You've probably heard about how bad the United States in terms of their healthcare. So as far as when you go to your GP, um, do they kind of have different programs that they refer you to for whatever issue it might be? 
So uh, generally we go to the GP, we have usually like a, now it's an online questionnaire that we do. And then we have like a 10 minute phone call with the GP. And depending on the severity of the issue and how many times you've come to the GP for that issue, will kind of dictate where you're going. So if it's, for example, you want to lose weight, you've if you've only come in once, then they're going to tell you, okay, here, here's this like leaflet about how to lose weight you know eat a balanced diet that kind of thing and that's your first time but if you for example struggled with that and you went in for multiple appointments then they might refer you to a program so it's very much yeah depending on the severity of the situation okay that's uh, a little bit different than what we have here so i think there's kind of a conceived notion that preventive medicine western medicine do not fit and they're kind of two different paradigms and this is unfortunately where a lot of pseudoscience comes in there's a lot of people are like oh western medicine can't do anything they're all about fixing the problem they just put a band-aid on it but we have to look to these other alternative methods if you want to look at prevention and then they start going towards all this pseudoscience that you see over all over social media and in actuality preventive medicine is baked into western medicine it is actually the thing that we all want as physicians to do. But the thing is that when it comes to preventive medicine, it's about kind of a lot more going into it versus what happens. So it requires a lot more resources, it requires a lot more time, it requires a lot more kind of communication with the patient, it requires a lot more of a relationship than what we have time for in this current system. So when it comes to Western medicine, in medical school, we're all taught kind of the different ways of prevention. And this is kind of taught in medical school. It's obviously not stress. It's not like an entire semester of classes on it. But you have primary prevention, which is as you were mentioning preventing disease completely outright let's say we're just not going to get heart disease let's just flat out we're not getting it secondary prevention is when you're kind of detecting for low-level diseases. So this is things like high blood pressure screening or hypertension, where you'll have people in the community where they have like these blood pressure cuffs and you go get your blood pressure measured. And this is screening to detect very low-level disease so that, oh, you have higher blood pressure, you should probably go get this checked out, get it treated, so you can prevent downstream effects. Tertiary prevention is kind of preventing unwanted symptoms of it. So let's say someone has diabetes, they known have the disease, but we're, we're preventing the progression of this so that they don't get a diabetic neuropathy where they can't feel their feet all of a sudden. We're preventing retinal hemorrhages so that they don't lose their eyesight. All those kinds of things are still kind of prevention in a known disease state. And then quaternary prevention is the reduction of over-medicalization of a patient. So this is at that point where let's say you have, uh, this is a very common scenario, unfortunately, where you have like a 70 or 75 year old who comes in and they're experiencing like real fatigue, like they're just tired all the time. And then you open up their medication list and they're on like 30 different medications because everyone just kept adding medications on and didn't have the time to kind of check between interactions to see does this have a side effect that could interact with something else. So this is kind of cleaning up a medication list and making sure that someone's not getting over medicalized. And even a, um, an interesting part to this, to add on to this for your listeners who might not necessarily think of this way, even hospice care for someone at the end of life is a way of quaternary prevention. And I had a podcast on this where if someone is kind of, let's say they're late stage cancer, we all kind of know they're not going to make it, but we keep trying anyway. We say, oh, they're so strong. Let's keep hammering them with chemotherapy, keep hammering the radiation, whatever it takes to help them live, right? But what is that chemotherapy doing to their quality of life? They have to go in almost like every day. They have so many side effects when in reality, they probably only have like a 5% chance of survival. So at that point, hospice is quaternary prevention where you reduce over-medicalization and kind of make sure that they live a high quality life for the time that they have left. So all of that, it goes to say that it's baked into Western medicine. It just requires a lot more time and resources to implement which unfortunately in our current system, at least in the US, I don't know how it is exactly in the UK, is not feasible. Yeah, that's actually, you know, a point that I think is quite important where, you know, in the UK, we obviously have the NHS, National Health Service, and it's a public system, which that has been, you know, systemically underfunded for like the last 12, 13 years, I would say. And that has severely reduced time that a doctor spends with 
their patient and that will obviously impact how much care and how much attention can be given to that patient i don't know much about the u.s system because obviously u.s is a lot more complex i would imagine with so many insurers and all this but just in general would you say that i know you touched on this a little bit but do you think you have enough time with a patient to really get to you know whatever the root of the issue is you know to be able to communicate that i guess prevention aspect Sure. So I think it depends on the setting and scenario that you're in. If you're in like a general kind of hospital type setting in a clinic, typically you don't because they try to book as many patients as possible within a time slot. And sure, there might be like a 30 minute time slot, but you also have to chart and get all these things done and get all the paperwork done for these patients. So it doesn't really come to your mind that, oh, let me spend this entire 30 minutes on counseling. Because sometimes what you want to do is like spend 25 minutes of it or even 20 and then like have that solve whatever their issue is, that acute issue that they came in for, and then spend that other 10 minutes charting. Because otherwise, at the end of the day, after let's say 16 patients from a full schedule, you have to still chart from whatever time you end until all of them are done. So that's kind of a lot of the mindset that goes into it where I want to be done working when the last patient is. So let's get all this charting done. Um, So probably not getting as much counseling. Um, In other scenarios, I've kind of worked with some physicians who a lot like 60 minutes for each patient. And in that, like they'll finish the problem in 30 minutes, they'll have 30 minutes to chart. And within 30 minutes, they can get full counseling, get everything done. But it depends on the model. It depends on kind of the payment system that the physician is accepting. It depends on are they willing to accept slightly lower reimbursement because the counseling is not reimbursed as a high rate as something like a procedure or something like ordering lab tests or all those things. So it depends on the uh, practitioner. It depends on the setting. There's so many different variables that come on it. And that's one of the things about the U.S. health system where it's so like fragmented. There's so many different individual type of things going on that it's not really homogenous and everyone gets kind of different care. Yeah. And I can imagine it's different. Like, you know, I would imagine it's different state to state, but then it's probably different literally hospital to hospital as well, just because everyone's taking, you know, different insurance and that kind of thing. That's just insane to me. But I think that's just my UK um, point of view coming in. Just like another thing. So if you do get that time to have that counselling session with the patient, do you find that patients can be receptive to it? Or do you think they're just kind of they just usually want the solution like a medicine or something and then one and done? So I think it depends on the patient. Obviously, some are a little bit more motivated to kind of figure things out so that they can advocate for themselves and work. And some just want a medication. That's completely fine. Um, every patient is not going to be the like, quote unquote ideal patient that's going to be self-motivated, figure out everything, turn their life around, all those kinds of things. So I think it heavily depends on the patient and also depends on the physician-patient relationship. As a resident right now, when I'm seeing a patient, it's usually like the first or second time I've seen them because I haven't had that continuity of like my career so i haven't been seeing the same patient over and over um so right now if i were to tell them something it's just kind of like a random outsider's perspective saying oh you should probably do this which are they going to take it maybe maybe not but if they've been seeing a physician for 10 years like let's say i had been seeing my endocrinologist and they're saying at this time oh you should probably do something about it i'm going to counsel you here's all this information here's what you can do about it here's some resources then maybe if i have a good relationship i'm much more likely to kind of take that advice and do something about it and are those kind of long-standing relationships common? With the heterogeneity of the practice in the United States, it just depends. Right now, I think there's a lot of, within the United States health system, there's a lot of older physicians that are leaving, whether it was due to COVID or just 
there's like the baby boomer generation just finally stopping the work. A lot of those patients are actually transitioning to newer providers. So that's kind of an ongoing issue that I've been reading about a little bit about all of this transition from older GPs that have been seeing this person for 30 years to someone brand new who practices medicine in a different way, has a different demeanor, all those kinds of things. So I've been reading a little bit about it. I'm going to continue reading more as the trend keeps going. Yeah, no, because that's an interesting thing. I think here in the UK, it's very, um, it's different for different populations. So I can imagine, you know, someone who's a little bit more settled, has stayed in their town for their whole life, you know, goes to the same GP for like 30 years or whatever it may be. But then we do have this thing where students, for example, people who are going off to university will go to a different city, they will sign up to their like usually there's a university GP so they'll sign up to that that is obviously you know you've gone from going to someone who knew you for like the first 18 years to someone completely different and yes they're really usually student GPs are fantastic at dealing with student specific issues but you are only doing that for three years and then you're going back so it does fragment it a little bit and just on the concept of prevention so we mentioned a little bit earlier there's so many different ways that prevention is baked into medicine and there's just, I guess there's so many things you can try and prevent. But one thing that I've learned from your podcast is kind of this idea of weighing up the risk versus reward. So there are some things that you can try to prevent, but it's kind of like, is it worth trying to prevent? Are you going to really be exposed to it? But then there are others that, you know, may be really beneficial to go and do so. Could you explain how the average person can, you know, weigh up these risks and benefits? And I don't know, maybe give an example uh, just to help illustrate it to the listener. Absolutely. And I think, uh, thank you for kind of taking that part away from my podcast. I think that's a very key message of sure, you can prevent things, but is it worth to prevent everything? Probably not. And thank you for asking that question. I think the first thing is kind of talking about what you can and can't prevent and kind of separating those two. And um, when it comes to things you can't prevent, let's think about like going outside. Sure, you can walk on the street, like when you're crossing the street, you can get hit by a car. Sure, you could do that at any time, but are we going to be worrying about that? Are we going to be wearing like a bubble suit at all times? Are we just going to not cross the street ever? Sure, those are ways to prevent getting hit by a car if you never go on the road, but is it worth it? Will we be able to go anywhere? Probably not. And that's a risk that all of us take every single day as we're crossing the street, hopefully as we're crossing the street. And as a less obvious example, there's other things like say food poisoning, which is a good example. So let's say we like to go eat out. We go to uh, Chipotle, which is our favorite fast food restaurant, like quick lunch. And we know that there's a chance of food poisoning because they use lettuce, they use all these different kinds of meats, whatever it is, there's a chance of food poisoning. But for the most part, it's not going to happen because everything's cleanly like sanitized, they prep it well, all of their food has been appropriately refrigerated, warmed, all those kinds of things. So we take that risk every day too, that we may get food poisoning, but probably not. The benefit is way more that we can get fast, convenient, tasty food during our lunch break. So that's another kind of risk that we take. Now, there are some things to kind of worry about. And that might be things like heart disease and diabetes and our risk of developing a stroke, all of these things. And those are things that you might want to worry about because they impact your health on kind of a more chronic level. So if you are going to get a stroke at some point, it could massively alter your life where all of a sudden you're not able to talk like the same that you were before with some level of dysphagia, sorry, aphasia. And then let's say maybe you can't swallow as well as you used to. So you do have some dysphagia. And then all of a sudden you can't use your right arm. So you have a hemiplegia. You have to modify all of your activities so that you use more of your left arm. That's life altering. And we can do things to prevent our risk of that. That includes like improving cardiovascular health, making sure that your diabetes is under control if you have it, or even preventing diabetes. And those are things worth worrying about. However, even within there, there is some more nuance. So 
Let's say you're talking about cardiovascular disease. One of the biggest things you can do is prevent yourself from getting hypertension. Now, this is actually pretty hard as we don't have a kind of explanation for what causes primary essential hypertension. It's not like a direct causation. So generally living a healthier lifestyle results in uh, reducing your risk for hypertension. So let's say you're doing that. So that's already checked off. Another part of cardiovascular disease is just like atherosclerotic plaques. So you are limiting the amount of saturated and trans fats that you eat, making sure that you're kind of eating a healthful diet in general, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, you're exercising, you're lowering your risk of atherosclerotic disease. So those are kind of the two biggest things I would consider for cardiovascular health. Now, you're already doing these things. So you're living a general healthful life. And now someone says, if you need to, if you want to prevent yourself from getting like cardiovascular disease, you have to do this one thing every day for 30 minutes at this specific time. Let's say take an ice bath, because that's been a new craze. So you have to take an ice bath every single day. Now, what is the benefit that's going to come from this? Like how, what is the magnitude of benefit that I'm getting from this one thing versus what is the kind of downside? I have to get a giant bucket full of ice. I have to spend 30 minutes every day doing this. So there's a lot of downsides to this where it takes time, resources, and effort, and whatever else it may be for very minuscule, if any benefit. And I haven't seen any convincing benefit of that for cardiovascular disease. That was just a random example. But there's a whole bunch of things that you can see like that on the internet where they're saying like, take this one magic supplement or do this one magic thing, do this one thing over here, and you'll reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. But they require a lot of time, effort, money, sometimes where you're buying an expensive supplement for what benefit usually not that much. So that's kind of that other thing where you don't worry about it. As long as you're living a general healthful diet and you're doing what you can on a large impact basis, that's kind of what you should be focusing on, not those little minutiae. Yeah, it's so... The reason I laughed when you said ice bath is because that was something that I was researching for this season. <laughs> and I... So there are, you know, scientists who have podcasts, obviously. And a lot of scientists non-clinicians I feel like can really get excited about little pieces of evidence or little pieces of studies or whatever it may be and a lot of these might be my studies or whatever it might be and then they will and I don't want to you know say that the scientists aren't qualified or anything like that of course they are usually but it can be I think we get very excited and then we present that information to the public. This is so like not related to this subject at all but I just needed to say it because I, I had it in my head but we can communicate that information to the public and then the public will go and run with it. But it's kind of like we haven't proved that this is helpful in a clinical, literal, daily sense. And that's where I feel like there's a difference between listening to scientists and then listening to the healthcare professionals. Because the scientists, we're going to get really excited about the little like lab dish, you know, details and evidence. Whereas the healthcare providers can make that more applicable to the everyday person but yeah the ice bar thing was really funny because i was really trying to figure out whether that's something that's useful or not i'm so glad that you brought that up that's actually a very amazing observation that you made i think that a lot of times that we have these days i'm not naming any names but there's specific like scientists who are obviously very well qualified but like you said they're getting very excited about a piece of evidence that came out in a very new study that's very mechanistic it's in mice they've only shown like a little bit of it and all of a sudden we're talking about it but even if they're not talking about it in the context of humans the people listening to these podcasts let's say like hundred thousand a million people listening to this podcast some of them will say oh maybe i should do this because he's saying it so he's a smart person so i'll start doing it it'll give me some benefit not understanding that this is a mechanistic piece of data not shown in humans and it 
probably has no benefit, if any, very little. So that's definitely a problem. And then it becomes even more of a problem when those people who are those scientists getting excited about minutia do say it could be relevant to humans because they don't have that kind of clinical aspect. They don't understand how you can apply these to humans. Sometimes they don't understand how these things don't translate the same to humans. For example, something that might benefit mice might actually be harmful to humans or something that might harm mice might be beneficial to humans. I'm very happy that you brought that up. And that's oftentimes where a lot of people get lost in that minutia because those are those little things uh, like the heat shock proteins, whatever it may be that you get really excited about that aren't really clinically relevant when it comes to humans. And if it is, it takes a vast amount of effort to kind of get that benefit when you could be doing something else, spending your time exercising, working on creating a better healthful environment, all those kinds of things. Yeah. And I feel like in general, I see this a lot in the kind of self-optimization type of content. You know, the people who are really, really want to optimize and make every aspect of their life efficient, which is, you know, everyone has their own prerogative to do what they want. That's fine. But for the average person who's, you know, struggling to get their 150 minutes of exercise a week, it's not helpful to look for these one, you know, this one magic pill, for example, that may be beneficial, may not be. Absolutely. So yeah, let's go back on track a little bit. So sorry about that little detour. We've talked a little bit about what individuals can do, you know, weighing up the risks and benefits and kind of with cardiovascular disease, it's quite, you know, straightforward in the sense that there's exercise that needs to be involved. I know it's more nuanced than that, but there are simple things that we can get started on. But I think another aspect of preventative medicine, and I know you don't like talking about this that often, but policy is quite important and I just kind of want to get a brief outlook on what role do you think policy plays and do you think it's important why or why not so the only reason I don't like talking about policy as much myself is because I don't know that much about it I'm learning to be a doctor right now I'm learning medicine and there's the world of policy is so vast there's so many different things I don't necessarily know how to read the research for it because I'm trained in like kind of scientific medical literature and there is literature on policy but it's kind of completely different. It's separate to me. So I'm kind of working on that. But I absolutely love policy. I think when it comes to preventive medicine, I think policy is actually the number one thing that we should focus on or can focus on for having a health promoting environment and kind of health promoting behaviors. And that's to say there's just so many different aspects of our lives that are governed by various policies about what we can and can't do, how we shape our daily behaviors, that kind of these things are the what we lie, what we lay back on is kind of our backbone for our behaviors and what we do on a day-to-day basis. For example, one of the policies that I've thought about recently or like city planning and watch a lot of videos on is not necessarily policy, but the way we design our cities here in the United States where everything in at least some cities you need a car for to get groceries, to go to like the post office, whatever it may be, you need to sit in a car, you need to drive like five to 10 minutes, maybe a little bit longer. Everything's further away. Whereas you see cities kind of like in um, Northern Europe where they're very bike friendly, where like everything's accessible by bike. People don't even drive cars. And that is generally a policy of city planning that is much more conducive to physical activity, to physical exercise, and also to connection. Because when you're out on the street, when you are biking, when you're doing all these things, you're typically seeing and interacting with people on a daily basis. Whereas in the United States, in a car, it's very easy to just go from your home to a car, do whatever you need to, and then get in the car and then go back home. Very minimal interaction. And I think that social interaction is also a huge part of kind of preventive medicine, kind of just general healthful things. 
that's one example of a policy. Other examples of policy are like the various taxations on kind of sugar sweetened beverages, all those kinds of things, which is probably a hot topic. People wouldn't want that to happen, but it's an easy way to kind of discourage people from drinking these very sugar sweetened beverages that have no healthful benefits and only exacerbate kind of cardiometabolic diseases. It'd be an easy way to kind of dissuade them and kind of put more, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but find more ways to kind of promote those healthy, healthier foods, the more whole grains, vegetables, fruits, all those kinds of things to kind of subsidize those more than what we are subsidizing. So I think it all comes down to policy at the highest level. I think even with when it comes to healthcare policy, I think the way that we reimburse physicians, at least in the United States, at least in the uh, UK as well, with kind of it sounds like decreased funding for the NHS, which allows less time to see patients because you only have to do like so many minutes for a visit. All of those things come down to policy. And the more time you can spend on the policy, the better you can create a system that kind of helps its individuals towards more health promoting behaviors. Yeah. And the city planning thing is such an interesting thing that I don't think I, I don't think anyone's really talked about in the concept of health in general, because it's not something that comes to your mind first time, like in the first instance, right? But it's something that I don't think is necessarily hard to implement either. You know, like if we take a look at the Netherlands, for example, they were heavily reliant on cars until the 70s and 80s. And then slowly, slowly, they started building infrastructure to allow bicycles to be the main mode of transport. And yeah, no, really, really interesting point. I do want to pick up on the sugar tax because I feel like that's a really controversial and interesting point. And I did actually do an interview with Dr. Giles Yo, who is an obesity researcher at the University of Cambridge. And I asked him about this as well. So we do have a kind of tiered sugar tax in the UK that is only applicable to fizzy soft drinks for things like your coke your pepsi not applicable to like sugary fruit juices is there anything like that in the US and if you know it was to if it's not already there and if it was to be introduced how do you personally feel about it so as far as it currently existing I do not think so unless it magically happened or I'm just living under a rock just trying to learn medicine but I don't think anything like that exists I would personally be for it I can't speak for the exact way that I would implement it but I think definitely finding some way to promote kind of more health promoting foods versus these sugar sweetened beverages would be ideal what percent that tax would be or how you want to implement that is beyond my scope and I think as far as it actually occurring it'd be very difficult for it to happen um, I think especially Especially with the current like political landscape within the United States and probably even the world at this point, there's just various policies and just implementing them are going to be very difficult. Even if it's like a very easy policy, like, oh, this is good for everyone. There's still going to be people who are like, oh, no, there's lobbyists, all this kind of stuff. It gets very messy. So I think on a personal level, I'd be for it on a national level. Is it going to happen? Probably not. Yeah. And I think an important part to pick up on there is it's beneficial if we also include a health promoting behavior to kind of replace that. So one thing about the UK sugar tax is, so we tax on fizzy drinks and um, it's a tiered system, but the money that's kind of collected from that tax goes towards health promotion programs. So it's not something that's That'd just- That'd be ideal. It's, exactly, it's not something that just sits there. I mean, from the data, it seems like the consumption of sugar sweetened beverages has gone down, which is obviously a great thing. And that money, the only <laughs> the only kind of um, caveat is that it's not produced as much tax as they would have hoped, which means there's less money to those health promotion programs. But you have to find a way to kind of 
deal with that, I guess. And again, it's, uh, you know, out of my scope. Yeah, it's still a step in the right direction. Exactly. I mean, there was arguments about how it's going to affect people of, you know, the lower socioeconomic classes the most, which I definitely agree with, it does. But again, if that money is going towards health promotion programs that inherently are going to be more targeted to people who are of a lower socioeconomic background, I think it's a good thing. And uh, I just want to say one other thing as far as policy goes. I don't know how it is in the UK either, but I can only speak for the US. But also things like community gyms, more accessible parks so that people can go outside and have some place that they can exercise so they can walk around. All of those things are also all part of policy, kind of just these various health programs, health initiatives, arranging transportation, better public transportation. All of these things are within the realm of policy and all of them impact health. Definitely. Definitely agree. And so we're coming up to the end. So... To finish off, let's go back to what individuals like our listeners can do, because that's going to be the most useful to them. You know, health is incredibly vast. It's incredibly complex. But in your opinion, what three things could anyone do right now to improve their health? And could you briefly explain why these things might be beneficial? So I think number one is exercise. Find a way to get your body moving. It doesn't have to necessarily be going to the gym, being on a treadmill, find an activity that you enjoy, whether it's kind of biking, playing tennis, playing football, whatever it may be, engage in that and make sure you're doing it. Build a community within that so that it kind of reinforces and promotes you to continue engaging that activity. Exercise is probably one of the easiest things to do because there are activities that we find enjoyable. Also, while you're doing that, I'm a huge proponent of resistance training, but even if you don't train five or six days a week in the gym, at least get in two or three days of a whole body workout. Um, I think it'll not only be more beneficial as far as all the resistance training benefits, but it'll make whatever activity you enjoy You'll get a little bit better at that because you have more muscle, more power for whatever it may be. So you'll probably be a little bit better. So that's activity number one. Activity number two is to find great friendships and social connections because I think mental health is one of those aspects of our overall well-being that impacts everything on such a fundamental level and having a human connection and being able to kind of speak with people about issues you might be going through, about sharing joys, sharing sorrows, all of those kind of promote a better mental health. And if you're in a better headspace, you're better at thinking about various things, critical thinking, you're more likely to engage in health promoting behavior. So I think That'd be number two is having a strong sense of community, a strong sense of like friendships, all of those kinds of things. And number three, I think, is probably to put yourself in an environment where you are not going to be eating unhealthy foods. So put yourself in an environment where you're away from those fast calories. So whether that is you are preparing your lunches so you don't end up buying whatever fast food there is, or whether that is not buying Oreos, cookies, cakes, whatever this may be to keep in your home. That's one of the easiest way to keep yourself away from these in-between mealtime snacks where you just don't have it. So either it requires a lot of effort for you to go outside of the house to go buy it. You have to put on pants, all these kinds of things. Or the alternative is you don't eat it. You just wait for the next meal. And that's an easy way to reduce calories. So I think those are three very easy things that you can do that'll generally help you live a healthier life. Amazing, amazing. And I do love that you focused on social connections there because I think we forget how much social connections can really impact our mental well-being. I mean, I think we experienced it firsthand, to be honest, during the pandemic. But exactly. yeah, definitely agree. So I think that's a perfect place to round off. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts. It's been incredibly insightful. You know, your focus on that kind of risk versus reward and also um, the social aspect I really, really liked. I'll make sure to have all your links. I don't think we mentioned anything references or any articles here but you did mention a couple of podcast episodes i'll have them in the show notes but yeah thank you so much thank you so much it was great to be on here it's always interesting being on the other side of the mic i I can imagine i haven't been 
interviewed myself, but how is it different? You actually have to think about <laughs> your answers you're giving, whereas when you're asking questions, sure, you have to be thoughtful, but you kind of have a prepared outline of things that you've done and you know where you're leading the conversation, all those kinds of things. So you're a little bit more in control on the other side. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think you'll be doing more then? Uh, being a guest? Yeah. I'd be happy to whenever anyone would like to have me on. <laughs> there you go. So again, thank you so much. Until next week. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Go ahead and leave a review and rate us, hopefully, five stars on wherever you're listening from. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, and head over to thegrowthmedium.com for more detailed information pieces. See you next week for another episode. Bye.